looking at me also like, please don't offer up a full course meal. A chicken salad sandwich will do just fine. <laughs> but we want to offer in a few moments what the Lord's put upon our heart. Um, I heard a story recently about a Texan uh, who was reared on a ranch and loved horses and so he was called to take care of some business in Dallas-Fort Worth, and he flew there, and he was a Christian gentleman, and he said, I don't really know anyone in Dallas-Fort Worth, and Lord, you know, since I love horses, I've always wanted to see a horse race. And so he found the racetrack, the Hippodrome, and so he went there, and he said, well, I got here early, so I'm going to go down by the stables, and I'm going to look at the horses uh, while they're grooming them, preparing them to run. So when he walked down to the stables, he saw the Monsignor, and uh, he was in front of this one horse, and he was sprinkling, ho sprinkling holy water on the horse. And so he watched, and the first race came, and Seabiscuit II won the race by three lengths. So he said, this is interesting. So he went back down, and he noticed that the Monsignor was sprinkling water on another horse. And so he went back for the second race, and this time the horse was just outstanding. He won by five lengths. And he looked up to heaven and he said, God, this is not gambling. This is a sure thing. So he sneaked back down to the stable for the third race, and he saw the Monsignor sprinkling water again on another horse. So he went up to the stand, and he put $500 down on this horse. And uh, he said, by the way, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to give all this money to missions work. And so the race started, and about three-fourths of the way around the track, the horse dropped over dead, dumped the rider. So he went and he talked to the Monsignor. He said, how is it that you sprinkled water on the first two? And they won the race, and you sprinkled water and blessed the third one, and the horse died. So the Monsignor looked at him and said, you're not a Roman Catholic, are you? He said, no, sir. He said, I'm a Southern Baptist. He said, because if you were a Roman Catholic, you would know the difference between blessing and last rites. <laughs> so uh, isn't it wonderful to gather together as the body of Christ with people from every conceivable background here this evening, and we serve the same Lord. If I were to entitle what I wish to speak to you about, it would be the revelation of Jesus Christ, an introduction. I have a syllabus uh, that is on the table out there that would give a more exhaustive explanation to some of the things I wish to talk about tonight. But I appreciate so much our wonderful Lord that we celebrate together. I do not believe that it is an accident that what we call the Bible, our holy book, is divided into seven portions. The first three portions are found in the Tanakh, which could also be called the Berit Rashith, because we often in Christian circles call it the Old Testament. It's simply the first testament. It's the first in order. And of course the three portions of the Tanakh are the Torah, the Nevaim, and the Ketuvim. This is what the Lord said to his disciples. 
I have come as the Son of Man to fulfill all that has been written about me in these three portions of Scripture. Because as the Messiah, he understood perfectly that he had already declared to Israel that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. The Lord had a legal responsibility to manifest himself. You know, one day the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, walked up to him and said, By what authority do you do the things that you do? They had the perfect right to ask him that. Just like the world has the perfect right to ask us what in the world are you doing, and by what authority are you carrying these things out in the world? Because there's two words in the New Testament for authority. One is dunamis, supernatural power, and the other has to do with exousia, legal or judicial authority. When the Lord said to the church, I commission you to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, he was giving them judicial authority. And so when the world says to us, by what authority are you doing these things in the earth? We can say as the Lord said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Because he has given us this great commission. The other four portions of scripture we find in the Berit Hadashah, the New Testament beginning with the Gospels, then the Acts of the Apostles and the early church, followed by the Epistles and the seventh portion of the Scriptures or the fourth part of the New Testament is the Revelation. The Revelation is a new, unique book in all of Holy Scripture. By way of introduction tonight, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, is the core objective of biblical revelation. He is the core unity of all of Scripture, and He is the catalyst to unity within the church and to unity between Jew and Gentile. So he, we find that He had declared in Psalm 40, verse 7, and this is also recorded in Hebrews 10, Verse 7 concerning Messiah. I have come in the volume of the book or the scroll because it is written of me. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Speaking again in John 5.39 he said, Search the scriptures for in them you think you have hope but they tell you exactly who I am. Can I say this tonight and not be misunderstood? Who and what Jesus was and is is the central issue before every one of us tonight. Colossians 1.19 said, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in him. So I would like to begin tonight with the first three verses of the book of Revelation. It's called the Apocalypse. 
Now many of you have probably seen the movie Apocalypse Now about the Vietnam War. And we often think of the apocalypse as about beast and the false prophet. And we think about apocalypse as all of the terrible things that are happening among the nations. But the word rightly applied has to do with the unveiling and the revealing of the glory of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ the Messiah. As a matter of fact, the word reveal, gala, in the Old Testament not only means to reveal, it means to uncover, to shamelessly show or make manifest. We are in a day when the Lord is going to shamelessly reveal and show forth the glory of His Son in all of the earth. Because the book of Revelation has been so misunderstood in the church, it has given rise to many historical definitions and interpretive forms for this book. And the major problem that we have in the Christian church is that we make the book of Revelation a mystery and not a revelation. The book of Revelation is not a mystery. It is an unveiling to the body of Christ, to Israel, and to the kingdoms of the world. And the reason we have this problem is because of the divorce in the church from continuity between the Tanakh and the New Testament. The disconnect between the church and the Jewish people. Four significant forms of interpretation for this book are these. In the preterist view, they look back at the Revelation, many scholars especially in the light of the book of Daniel, chapters 2, 7, and 8. And they see the four great kingdoms in history that Daniel spoke of, ending with the Roman Empire. And they look simply at this as apocalyptic literature that Judaism and Christianity produced a plethora of. And they simply view it in that manner that this is Revelations 13 and this is the seven churches of Asia dealing in their time in the first century with the Roman government itself. And then we see secondly there was a historical view that was applied to the book of Revelation. One of the most famous Christian histories that gives rise to this theory is that of Andrew Miller. In Andrew Miller's History of the Christian Church, in the historical view, they look at the seven churches of Asia as seven different dispensations of time through Christian history, now bringing us to the age of the Laodiceans, the seventh church that John addressed. This was also called the Protestant view because... The Protestant movement had adopted this and looked at it from a spiritual perspective and they actually saw the Roman Catholic Church as the harlot that rode upon the beast powers of the world and they looked in the Middle Ages and interpreted the, the conglomerate of nations simply as the Holy Roman Empire which came to the zenith of its authority in the days of Hildebrand and the abuses that were brought forth by the papacy. So we find even to this day that in many evangelical circles, the book of Revelation is interpreted in light of Roman Catholicism, the Holy Roman Empire, and uh, some of the major passages that they assert to this are Revelations chapter 13, 17, and 18. 
Then we find another view is the idealist view of interpretation. It's not given a literal form of interpretation, but a philosophical one. Simply, it is poetry. It is a poetic manifestation of the struggle between good and evil that began in heaven and came down through the whole history of time and has no significant bearing upon our generation and our time, prophetically speaking. Then we find that the futurist view of interpretation looks at this largely as end-time prophecy that leads up to the coming of Messiah and the establishing of the Father's kingdom on earth, particularly chapters 4 through 19 are events that John said, I saw things after the first century, things which will be hereafter and will lead up to the appearing of Messiah. Now, I personally fall into the futurist view of interpreting the Scriptures. I believe that portions of this book have already happened, but the majority of this revelation is a declaration to our generation to cause us to see the preparation of the coming of Mashiach. Also, there is credible evidence that is coming forth through scholars in the body of Christ today that perhaps the revelation was first written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek because of the construct of this book. Many scholars are coming to believe that it was indeed a Hebrew alphabetic acrostic, that this was the format for the book, simply because it has 22 subdivisions, and in the very first chapter there is this declaration by the Lord that He is the Aleph to the Tau. He is the beginning and He is the end of the glory of God's revelation to man. This poetic form or this literary form, I should say, is best known in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the entire Bible, 176 verses divided into 22 subdivisions of 8 verses each. The singular topic is the Word of God. Amen? And each of the 22 subdivisions began with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So we find here if John had in mind and if the Lord had in mind that the book of Revelation was going to be a synoptic revelation of all that he had said from the beginning to the end that it indeed should reveal the Lord as the Aleph to the Tau in all of his dimensions and in all of his glory. This hermeneutic principle of interpreting the Scripture in synoptic form was nothing new. We call the first five books of the Tanakh the Torah. And we find when we come to what we call in our English Bibles Deuteronomy, which means second law, because it was a rehearsing of all that God had said through Moses, we find though that the Hebrew people normally named their books after the first phrase of each book. So we find that the first phrase of the book, these are the words Devarim, became what the book was about. But if you study the book closely, it is the synoptic gospel of the Torah. In synoptic capsule form, the Lord recapitulates and He rehearses with them all that He had led them through and all that He had revealed to them and all that He had declared. 
I tell you tonight that at the end of the biblical revelation that same hermeneutic principle was employed again when the Lord looked down through the pages of all of biblical revelation and out of the 404 verses in those 22 chapters 270 verses can be referenced back to the Tanakh and to statements in the New Testament either in their numeric value in terms of their metaphorical revelation or similes or in their connection to portions of prophecy in all of Scripture can be traced into all of Scripture. So we find that this is a synopsis of our Lord. The reason the church has made a mystery out of this book is because there again we have been divorced from the Midrashic homilies that were prevalent within Judaism, the parables, the allegories, the similes, the metaphors, the typological language. And there's no, if you can't understand the New Testament without the Old, you definitely can't understand the book of Revelation without taking it back to the Tanakh. It is full of numerology. It is full of typology that reveals the glory of who Jesus Christ truly is. The key number to the book is seven. The Lord at the beginning of the book is standing in the midst of seven golden menorahs. And He is revealed as the Ancient of Days. He's more than just the Son of Man. He is revealed in all of His glory. The One who was from everlasting and who is to everlasting. The invisible, immutable God. So we find here there are seven churches of Asia, seven thunders, seven eyes, Seven trumpets, seven horns, seven vials. Amen? So we find, why is the number seven so prevalent? Is because seven is completeness or perfection. This is the summing up. This is the pulling together. The consummation of all that God the Father had determined in the glory of His Son. And then there are some key interpretive verses that helps unlock this declaration, this revelation of the Lord to us. The first three verses really is the interpretive watershed for this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave to him. He didn't come up with this idea it was the revelation of who he was that the Father gave to him before the foundation of the world. And he was going to declare and give it to the church through his servant John, who was saying, Blessed is he that readeth, and blessed are they who understand, for the time is at hand. You know this statement, for the time is at hand, is a quotation from Joel 3.14. For the day of the Lord is near. If you want to understand what this revelation of God the Father through His Son is about, the day of the Lord is near. And blessed are they who have eyes to see and ears to hear as the Lord unveils the glory of the person of His Son. Then we find in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 that it says, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. I don't really want to meddle with your eschatology tonight, but I just want to declare the Scriptures faithfully. By saying this, there is nothing secret about the coming of the Lord. This is going to be a cataclysmic event 
that is manifested in the heavens and upon the earth according to the statements of Jesus himself. Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye shall behold him, even those who pierced him. Was that not what the prophet said? That they would mourn for him, Zechariah said, as one that mourneth for his only son? And then when Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, he said, you will not see me anymore until you say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So we find that he's coming. We find that when he ascended in Acts chapter 2, that he went up in literal clouds, and there were two angels standing by and said, Why stand ye here gazing into heaven? For this same Jesus that went away in like manner shall come again. He's coming with clouds. But let me tell you, he's coming with more than just literal clouds. He has to come with judicial authority. Jesus Christ just can't come back to this earth and show up one day and say, I'm the Messiah. He's got to have proof. He's got to have witnesses that he is the Christ of God. We find that in the book of Revelation that the dead in Christ are asleep under the golden altar in heaven. We go out and mourn our dead at local cemeteries and there's nothing wrong with going and putting flowers on the grave and remembering them but my wonderful father who ministered the gospel for 55 years is asleep in Jesus and he's under the golden altar in heaven awaiting the shout of Messiah one day to wake up. If you really study 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 closely you'll find this. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again how many believes that? Paul said, those who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. I want to tell you, is God coming back? Jesus is not just the Son of Man. God is coming. And he's coming in the person of his Son. Now, this, let me just throw this out and you pray for me if you don't believe it. Because I've been wrong before. But the resurrection is not going to take place in Forest Lawn. The resurrection of the dead is going to take place in heaven. That's where they're at. We find that when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said in 2 Corinthians 5, If the tabernacle of this body be dissolved, we have a new tabernacle made in the heavens. Where is it at? Made in the heavens without hand. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, Just as we've borne the image of the earthy, we shall bear the image of the heavenly, the second man Adam from heaven. So how are you going to get it? The dead in Christ were once in the bosom of Abraham, but when Jesus resurrected on the day of first fruits, he had to have witnesses that he was the resurrection and the life. There were not only people walking about in Jerusalem. When he appeared before the Father, he had to have a wave sheaf in his hand to prove that he was the resurrection and the life. And when he appeared in the presence of God, he took all who were in the bosom of Abraham and he put them under the golden altar in heaven that they might sleep with him in paradise. Well, it's getting quiet in here. But I want you to know one thing. He can't show up with just a bunch of angels. 
He's got to show up with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. He's got to show up with the apostles and the earliest believers. He's got to descend from heaven and say, Listen, you may not believe I'm the Messiah, but here are the millions, the throngs that I am bringing from heaven. And at that moment, the living church shall be caught up to meet Him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So he's coming not only in literal clouds, he's coming with a cloud of witnesses from heaven. Then we find in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 that John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a voice like a trumpet behind me. Do you know that there are actually eight trumpets in the book of Revelation and not seven? He said, I heard a voice like a trumpet and he said, I turned and when I turned... Oh, hallelujah. I saw Messiah in all of his glory as the ancient of days standing in the midst of the church. That's who I saw. And the Lord began to talk to him, said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard a voice like a trumpet, and I turned. You know, when you go to Revelation chapter 4, he said, and the same trumpet, the same voice that talked to me in the first chapter said, come up here, John, and I'm going to show you what's going to be in the last times. The Old Testament prophets not only speak about trumpets, plural, they speak of the great trumpet. The great trumpet is Messiah himself. He's speaking to the church first. And when you go to chapter 12, he's speaking to Israel and calling forth the remnant of the seed of Abraham that they might come forth in their glory in the last times. And then you find in chapter 14 that same voice is speaking to the nations of the world to hear the everlasting good news that the Lord is coming to change all of political history on planet earth. How many is glad that the first trumpet is the great trumpet, the voice of the Lord himself? Now there's been a perennial debate in the church. Here's how a lot of people would interpret this if they're in the Messianic community. He was worshiping on Shabbat and he heard the Lord speak to him. Now, if you come from evangelical circles, we have suddenly made the day of the Lord something different from the Sabbath. And we say on Sunday, the first day of the week, he was having a prayer service and he heard the voice of the Lord and he turned and the Lord was speaking to him. Can I tell you that I think we're arguing over something that's a non-essential here? I don't think it's an issue about whether he was worshiping on Shabbat or the first day of the week. I think here's how it should be applied. I was worshiping and I came to be in the spirit of the day of the Lord. And the Lord began to reveal the day of His coming to me and the day of the Lord in all of its glory. And He said, I began to be the Lord's stenographer and I began to record it and to write it down and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. The book of Revelation is about the day of the Lord. If you pick up commentaries today and you read after scholars, you can find as many, in some writings, as many as seven different days of the Lord. Over 17 times in Scripture the day of the Lord is referred to. But if you look at the day of the Lord as a singular subject with many components, then all of Scripture and the book of Revelation comes together in a cohesive revelation. 
you know, they look at it and they say, well, if the day of the Lord is a millennial kingdom of peace on earth, how could it be that the prophets talked about a day of the Lord when calamity and wrath and destruction would come upon the nations of the earth? We can't reconcile these two things. But I beg to differ with you. I believe the day of the Lord begins with a day of trouble and with a day of darkness and with a day of calamity on the earth. And then the, the next portion of the day of the Lord is going to be when He breaks forth in all of His glory upon planet earth. And then there's another portion of the day of the Lord when he sits down on David's throne and orders the Father's kingdom in all of the earth and rules and reigns for a thousand years. So I believe there is continuity in Scripture when we begin to look at it in this context. Then in Revelations 1.19 is another key interpretive verse. Because the trumpet, the, the Lord himself that was speaking to John says, I want to tell you this, John. I'm showing you things that have happened already. How many realized by this time that Jesus had come? Jesus had died. He had rose again. He had ascended. All of these things had happened historically. Some of it, he said, is happening now with the seven churches of Asia and with the believers in Messiah throughout the world. I want you to send this book, this revelation, in the present to those seven churches. But thirdly, he said, the things which are, or which have been, which are, and which shall be, he said a portion of this book is going to be about things that will happen at the end of the age. So that's the reason that when we get to Revelations 4 verse 1, we see this major demarcation in the book when he said, John was caught up in the Spirit and he saw, saw a door standing open in heaven. I want you to know today, that's not a swinging door. When the Lord ascended as the door to the sheepfold, He opened that door and it is propped open. And it's wide open. I want you to know there's an open door between heaven and earth. And the Lord hears us in heaven. And He said, John, come up here. John was caught up in the Spirit, not literally. This is not the rapture of the church. John was caught up in a vision. He was caught up in the Spirit. And he saw the very throne of God. You know, many scholars today will take Revelation chapter 4 and, verse, and chapter 5 and they'll say this is the church that's been raptured singing in heaven because in the King James it says, Thou hast redeemed us from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and people, and nation, and Thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. But when you read this in the Greek interlinear text of the New Testament, you get a proper definition. This is not the church singing in heaven. This is the four and twenty elders. This is the four living creatures and the innumerable host of the angels. And here's what they're singing. You have redeemed them who dwell on the earth. And Lord, you have unto God the Father, you have redeemed a priestly nation out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And here's their destiny. When you come back, they're joint heirs with you and they're going to reign on the earth. And they were singing about God's purposes on earth. Can I tell you this tonight? I don't want to be anti-Semitic in my theology. The Lord didn't deliver them out of the ten plagues. He delivered them through the ten plagues. He didn't deliver them out of the wilderness. He led them through the wilderness. 
I serve a God if he can keep Israel through the ten plagues and not let the death angel come upon them or any other thing. Isaiah said it so well in Isaiah 4 when he speaks of the dwelling places of Zion, plural, that upon all the dwelling places, plural, shall be the glory of God for a defense. Whether you're in Midland, Texas, or in Cleveland, Tennessee, or in Timbuktu, the Lord is able to cause His glory to be upon the church and upon Israel and to preserve us in last things. Hallelujah. Most scholars say that the church is nowhere to be found after Revelations 4, verse 1. I beg to differ. When you get to Revelations chapter 7 and you see the 144,000 who are the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb from all the tribes of Israel, then you get to verse 9 and you see a host of people that's come out of great tribulation and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and they've been made white. I want to tell you from among the nations of the world there is a church that is going to be harvested from all of the nations and He's going to bring them through great tribulation. Why? That He might wash them and purify them and adorn them as a bride waiting for her husband. So we see that standing side by side with Israel during a time of trouble is going to be a loving church. And Israel and the church shall be restored together. And they shall worship the same Messiah. And celebrate the same faith. And celebrate the unity of the living God. It's on its way. See, whether you agree with me or not, it's not important. I'm just sharing my heart with you. I just want to make you think. You know what teaching and preaching is about? To make you think. Doesn't mean that any of us are totally right about everything, but I want you to think with me. I personally believe that the events between chapters 4 and 19 are all of the prophetic events concerning Israel, the church, and the nations that lead up to and including the second advent of the Lord. As a matter of fact, chapter 19 is the focal point of this book. <laughs> Hallelujah. How many of you believe that the Lord's going to come with a shout? Everybody say hallelujah. hallelujah. How many believe the Lord's coming with a shout? With the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. 1 Thessalonians 4. Is that right? We often forget this though in 1 Corinthians 15. At the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise. At the last trump, we will put on immortality. Well, when you go into the book of Revelation, you find in chapter 11, verse 15, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he should begin to sound, what is his message? The mystery of God's Torah, the mystery of the Nevi'im, the mystery of the prophets has been fulfilled. And here's what he goes on to say. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of God the Father and His Mashiach. How many is glad there's going to be a declaration in all of the earth? <laughs> Hallelujah. So we need to connect the dots in scriptures, not just some trumpet in the days of the voice of the seventh angel. Well, seems like to me that we've gone through a few things by the time you get to the voice of the seventh angel. 
and the trumpet of God in the earth. I want to end with this tonight. I know I need to obey what I said earlier today. Blessed is the preacher who can stand and be seen, speak and be heard, and sit down and be appreciated. But I do want to end with this thought toward a biblical eschatology. Last things. In Daniel chapter 2, he interprets for Nebuchadnezzar a dream of this image that stands up in four parts. A head of gold, arms and breast of silver, belly of brass, and feet of iron and clay. And then throughout the book of Daniel, he reveals to him historically that there are four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, the Roman Empire. But then he doesn't stop there. He speaks futuristically beyond these four kingdoms. Because he said, when this thing stood up together, all four parts at one time, I saw a stone that was hewn out of a mountain without hands. Well, I want you to know that one day, well, in, in, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, God the Father speaking, He said, This day have you become my son. Well, I've, I want to ask you a question. When was it that the Godhead that is co-eternal, consubstantial, co-equal, when was it that God could say today, you have become my son. It's when the father overshadowed a virgin whose name was Miriam and that holy thing conceived in her was the son of the living God. Hallelujah. It wasn't Joseph that caused that conception. It was God the father who caused that conception. And there was a stone that was hewn out of the mountain Without hands, not by human design. And let me tell you about this great stone. Daniel said, I saw that stone fall upon the feet of that image, and all four parts of it fell at one time and collapsed to the earth. And the stone that caused that image of nations to collapse, he said it began to grow and it turned into a kingdom and it filled all of the earth. And when you go to Daniel chapter 8, you understand that stone being Messiah that becomes a kingdom because he said now it's time to give the kingdom to the saints of the Most High God that we might rule with him in the earth. How many is thankful that in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven, Daniel said, set up a kingdom that will fill all of the earth. See, when you go to the book of Revelation and you study Chapters 12, 13, 17. You understand that what has been is now and what is to be in the future has already been and God requires that which is past. We're going to see a geopolitical system come together that at the same time looks like ancient Babylon, looks like ancient Medo-Persia, looks like Greece, looks like Rome, all at the same time coming together to do what? 
Psalm chapter 2 said, Why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth conspire together against God the Father and against His Messiah, saying, We will cast off His Torah. We will cast off His teaching. We will cast off His restraint. That's the battle that's in the world today. We are warring against neo-paganism that has written, risen up against God the Father and against His Christ. But I want you to know He's not standing in heaven with His pants legs shaking. The Father is not nervous tonight. I want you to know He's chomping at the bit waiting for the hour to send His Son back in power and in great glory. Please forgive me for letting the Pentecostal preacher come out in me. But this stuff is real to me. Hallelujah. We see this stone in Revelation chapter 12, the first five verses. You see Joseph's dream in the book of Revelation. You'll understand Revelation chapter 12. Go back to the book of Genesis and read Joseph's dream. Here's a woman clothed in the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she's pregnant. (laughs) Amen. And she brought forth a son who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And guess who was standing before her when she brought forth this? Here was the Roman Empire and the crowns are now on the seven heads showing the seven satellite kingdoms of Rome at the time Jesus first appeared, born in Bethlehem. The crowns are on the seven heads and there is Herod, amen, representing the Roman government to destroy this child that's born. And the Bible said when he tried to destroy him, he was caught up. Harpazo. He was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, that's what Jesus did after he finished his ministry. He ascended to your God and to my God so that he might receive a kingdom, as Daniel said, and return. How many is glad that the husband man of the church has actually gone away to receive a kingdom and he's on his way back? Hallelujah. And then the conglomeration of all this world manifest kingdom that's coming again that Daniel talks about is described perfectly in Revelation 17. He not only sees Rome, which is not only seven kings. Is that what he said? It's seven hills upon which the city sat. Now he said, what's this? The Bible is a revelation. It's not a mystery. At the time John wrote this, he said, five of these kings have fallen. Well, let's see if that's true in history. The Sumerians had come and passed away. The Egyptians had come and passed away. The Babylonians had come. They were off the scene, the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. The five major empires in history. And he said, the sixth one now is. So he was standing there staring Rome in the face. And he said, the seventh one is yet to come. And he said, it's interesting. In the day that the seventh one is manifested, who's going to defy Messiah? He is among ten. He shall consume three. He is the seventh and becometh the eighth. Well, the number seven and eight are the numbers of Mashiach. So therefore, he is going to become the false Messiah. So we see this, that the seventh one is on his way. And so that's what Daniel said. In the day when you see this ten-toed kingdom, though it's all going to rise up together, there's going to be ten prominent kings, and he will rise up in the midst of them and become a false messiah. Is this what he said? And then you get over to Revelation chapter 13, the first ten verses, and you see an angel descends from heaven, and he puts, watch this, a foot on the land, 
And he puts a foot on the sea. And he says the seas of the earth are kindreds, tribes, peoples, nations. It's the populace of the world. And he sees this beast power of Daniel rising up out of the nations of the world. But notice this. Now the crowns are on the ten horns. They're not on the seven heads. He's bringing you to last things. And then he goes to verse 10 and he said, Here is the patience of the saints. He didn't say here is the escape of the saints. He said here's the patience of the saints. When you see all of these things coming upon the world, Jesus said, know that my coming is near even at the door. I end with that tonight. I do want to be appreciated. But I just want you to know that right at the end of Holy Scripture, there is a synoptic gospel of all of Scripture, and it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, and He loves you tonight with a love you can't even begin to comprehend. He loves Israel. Oh, I want to tell you, study Revelations 12 and the love that he has for that nation and the efforts that he's going to go to to preserve a remnant. He's even going to cause the flood the devil cast out that the earth itself will open up and swallow the flood so that a remnant of Israel can be saved. It doesn't matter what Hamas does tonight. It doesn't matter whether Europe agrees or not. It doesn't matter what America does or not. Amos the prophet said, When I bring them back in the last times and plant them in their land, they shall never be rooted up again. And the words of the prophets cannot be set aside. But tonight I want to pray with you and for you. This is the patient endurance of the saints. There's not anything going on in your life that escapes Him. There's not anything that's going on around you that He is not concerned about and compassionately moved toward. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your children and grandchildren. He cares about community. He cares about all that concerns you. And He said, Come unto Me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Roll your burdens upon Me. For I care for you. I'm the great burden bearer. See, it's not just enough to know he's coming. It's not even enough to have the unveiling of his prophetic word in our hearts and in our midst. We must endure tonight. We must endure tomorrow. We must endure next week. We must endure faithfully month by month and year by year, either till he calls us home or, or until he appears in power and in great glory. I want you to stand to your feet right now. Is this okay, Dr. Koch? I, just, I want to pray with you and for you. How many of you understand tonight that he knows everything you need before you ask? But the scripture says we have not because we ask not. Please forgive me tonight for preaching like a pastor, but I love pastors. I pastor pastors. I pastor a church. I have a pastor's heart. I, all of this, you know how I want to translate it? it? I love to just listen to these men and drink in, but in the final analyses, I want to know how this plays out in Susie's life and in George's life. Amen? And in a teenager's life, how does this all translate out? And tonight, if you need healing in your body, he not only 
died to heal your soul, but by the stripes of the Lord, there's even physical healing. You may be having financial challenges. You may be having challenges in your marriage. I've had people to walk up to me this week with tears in their eyes that touched my heart and said, I've just now come, my children are grown, I have grandchildren, and now I'm just coming to the knowledge of blessing. I feel so mournful that I was not able to speak this into my children's life. And I want to tell you, I want to lift the heaviness of that off of you tonight in the name of the Lord. Because when we come into revelation, you can bless in retrospection just like you can bless into the future. And you can speak that which you do not see as though it already were. And the Lord wants to give you that hope to speak into the lives of those around you. Whatever your need is tonight, where two or three are gathered and agree together, whatever you ask of the Father, Jesus said, where two or three agree, the Father, it's His good pleasure to give it to you. I want you to take two or three neighbors, just take a neighbor by the hand, if there's two or three of you together right now. Hallelujah.